I think some misconceptions about therapy are that, you know, someone is just going to sit there and nod their head or empathize with you, or that it is going to be all about the past. And really, it's about the present. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer, make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. In today's episode, we're talking to psychotherapist and journalist Lori Gottlieb. Her book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, was on the New York Times bestseller list for over a year. Plus, she has an advice column in The Atlantic, is a host of the podcast Dear Therapist, and she has a clinical practice in Los Angeles. Today, she's going to teach us about therapy, the benefits, who it's right for, and the biggest misconceptions. Okay, therapy. That's a loaded word. Let's get into it, Britt. I know you're a huge fan of therapy, so I want to hear about your experience a little bit. Well, only recently. Okay, I was the girl who never thought I needed therapy. I'm like, I have no problems. I haven't luckily had to deal with any serious critical mental health disorder. I feel pretty stable and balanced. And of course, that makes me the perfect person for therapy because I actually tried it only because my husband had been going for a while. I have a bunch of friends that go to therapy and they convinced me to just do a session. And I was like, okay, fine. I'll just do it to like appease you. And I was sobbing in the first five minutes. I was just like, where have you been all my life? And I was just like, oh my God, I don't even know. And basically I learned about the child within me and all the reasons why my parents like messed up when I was little, but I still love them and how that had made me into the person I am today. And I've done individual therapy, couples therapy, I've done all kinds of like interesting like therapeutical treatments. I think therapy means so many things though. So I don't even know how to answer this question. But have you? Have you tried therapy? I actually don't know this. I have not tried therapy. I'm (gasps) very pro-therapy and I feel like I'm like, oh, that's so great. You're going to therapy whenever anyone tells me about it. But for whatever reason, I just haven't gone. And I think there's a little bit of, well, I need a reason or there has to be something specifically that I need to unpack or something like that. And it's something that's come up recently. My mom's a psychologist. My sister-in-law is a psychiatrist. My mother-in-law is a therapist and she's like, a therapist who brings therapy into all conversations in a pretty productive way. But also it's like, sometimes I'm like, I think I just had a session. And it's funny because going through parenthood, I find myself unpacking my own childhood in a way that I just didn't know that I was going to. I've lately been much more therapy curious. (gasps) That's an interesting point. I was in therapy the other day. We do couples and my individual. So I was in couples. By the way, I think couples therapy is not because you're about to get divorced. It's like, if you were an Olympic athlete, you'd be getting coaching every week. We want to have like an Olympic marriage and we get counseling every week and we're working together now. And there's just a bunch of stuff. So the thing that happened was Dave was walking through. <laughs> I hope he's cool with me just talking about our therapy session. <laughs> we were saying how like, you know, he had trouble when he was younger at like age five or six. And he's freaking out right now because our son is five. And it's like everything is rehashing in his mind and it's just like really blowing up for him. So I totally agree with that. I feel like also 
now that I've gone through therapy, I think everyone should have therapy. I think it should be subsidized by the government. We have such a crazy mental health disorder in this world. If you haven't listened to our past episode about teach me something new about depression, it's real. Whether or not you have an actual mental health disorder or you just like want to feel better and under- and unpack like the emotions inside you. So that's why I'm so excited today to break the stigma surrounding therapy and welcome someone who's actually a therapist. Lori Gottlieb is here to teach us something new about therapy. Welcome, Lori. Oh, thank you. I'm so I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Can you tell us about how you got interested in therapy and when did you make the move to become a therapist? So I took a very non-traditional path to becoming a therapist. I wasn't somebody who ever in a million years thought I'm going to grow up and become a therapist, but I was always interested in the human condition. And so I did that through story. So um, after I graduated from college, I was working in film development in Los Angeles, and then I moved over to network television. I went over to NBC. I was working on a couple shows. Uh, that you might have heard of. One was called ER, and the other one was called Friends. And, oh my gosh. Um, wait, wait, and it, wait, wait, and you'll be there for us. <laughs> yeah. Do you That's... play the song when people come in the office? You know, I'm trying to actually make people feel comfortable, not mortified when they come in. So no, I don't do that. <laughs> I would pay you extra if you played that before <laughs> and after my session. You know, it was actually working on ER though that got me interested in real stories. So when you're, you know, doing television, you're you're making up stories, but they're but they were very much based in what we go through as people and. I thought they were really well done. But when I was working on ER, I really got interested in what happens when, you know, these stories are real. So I ended up going to medical school and it was when I was in medical school that managed care was coming in and I realized I wasn't going to be able to spend the time that I wanted to spend with my patients and have those kinds of relationships that I wanted. And and I was writing when I was in medical school. And so I left to become a journalist where I felt like I can help people to tell their stories. After I had a baby, I really craved adult company during the day. And so I thought, wow, I need to get out of the house um, somehow, or I need to do something professionally that is not journalism. And so I was at Stanford Medical School and I called up the dean and I said, maybe I should come back and finish. And um, and she said, you know, if you want to have those longer relationships, those deeper relationships and not do medication management, you should get a graduate degree in clinical psychology. And it, it sounds very obvious in retrospect, but it was this aha moment of that's exactly what I want to do. And so I have this hybrid career where I'm a therapist and I have a clinical practice, but I also continued my writing career. And I think both are about story and the human condition. Yeah. And I've read your book and it's, I think it's such a beautiful blend of your work. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions about therapy? Obviously you touched on this whole, it's not just about your childhood and it's ongoing. Tell us more about that. I almost think that therapy is like getting a really good second opinion on your life from someone who is not already in your life. And that part is key because I write in the book about the difference between idiot compassion and wise compassion. So idiot compassion is what our friends do, right? We tell them this is what happened and isn't this awful and this person did this and we say, yeah, you're right. They were wrong. That's terrible, right? That's idiot compassion. It doesn't really help us because if you really listen to your friends' stories over time, they will be telling very similar stories, just with different scenarios and different characters. It's kind of like if a fight breaks out in every bar you're going to, maybe it's you. 
but we don't say that to our friends. So in therapy, you get wise compassion, which is we hold up a mirror to you and help you to see something about yourself that maybe you haven't been willing or able to see. And, and that's the part that's so important. So I think some misconceptions about therapy are that, you know, someone is just going to sit there and nod their head or empathize with you or that it is going to be all about the past. And really it's about the present. It might be about how the past is keeping you stuck. It might be about blind spots that you can't see because of an old story that you're telling yourself from the past. Um, but it's really about looking at what is not working in the present. How are you stuck? What what needs to change? And then how do you have the agency yourself to change it? Because so many people come in and they say, oh, you know, the problem is this person out there or the situation out there. And that doesn't mean that there aren't difficult circumstances. Of course, look at the world right now or difficult people. I remember when I was training, a supervisor said um, before diagnosing someone with depression, make sure they aren't surrounded by assholes. Right. So, of course, there are difficult people out there. But then what is your response? And what therapy can help you to do is to really tease out what is my role in this? What am I responsible for and how am I getting in my own way? And what are the main reasons someone decides to finally see a therapist? Does someone usually have to rope them into it or are they often making their own decisions to go? Yeah, I mean, I think it's all over the map, but I think that a lot of times when somebody comes in, I want to know not just why are you here, but I want to know why now? You know, why this day, this week, this month did you decide to come in when maybe this problem has been going on for a very long time? And so I'm looking not only for what's not working, but I'm scanning for strengths. And one strength is that they came in that they said, wait a minute, I actually want to do something about this thing that's not working in my life, right? Whether it's anxiety or depression or relational difficulties, whatever it might be. And so I think just going there is a sign that they're, they're ready for something to change, right? And that's really important. I, sometimes though, when you ask, you know, what gets people in, um, I think that we look in our culture at physical health differently from emotional health. So like if something happens to you physically, like say you're having, you know, some discomfort in your chest, you're probably gonna get that checked out with a cardiologist before you have a massive heart attack. But if you feel some discomfort emotionally, often what happens, we minimize it. Like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not sleeping well, or I'm kind of down, or I'm anxious, but you know, like other people have it so much worse, or it's not really that bad because I have a roof over my head and food on the table, so how bad is it? We don't do that with our physical health. We don't say like, yeah, I broke my leg, but somebody else has cancer, so I'm not gonna go to the doctor and for my broken leg. So I think what happens is people, when they come to me, usually they're they're having the equivalent of an emotional heart attack like they've let it get to a crisis point and at that point first of all you've suffered unnecessarily for however long but also it's harder to deal with at that time because if you had come in when it first presented itself it might have been it wouldn't have gotten to this point necessarily so i really encourage people that you know if you are feeling like you know something doesn't feel right emotionally go get it checked out don't wait for the crisis what are the things that are most universal when people come in that they're struggling with is there any rhyme or reason to their symptoms quote unquote um you know something isn't working <laughs> um, and, and that can look like a lot of different things. It could be a loss, like a very tangible loss, like someone, uh, you know, there's a death or there's a miscarriage or um, a divorce is a loss, right? Um, or a end of a relationship is a loss. Um, you know, it could be something like a precipitating event like that, or it could just be, 
you know, I'm struggling. I'm I'm not focused. I I don't I don't I don't feel joy. I feel very kind of numb. Or just in my life I feel stuck. I don't feel like I'm moving anywhere. I'm not I'm not sure what's going on. Usually there's a, a lack of connectedness in those situations. Right? There's like a you know, we talk about the epidemic of loneliness, even though we're surrounded by by lots of friends or family. Um, we aren't really connecting in a way that is nourishing and sometimes People need to really see, like, how is their life peopled and how can they really make sure that those connections are being are being fed and watered? Especially now more than ever. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say someone's goals should be to get out of therapy? We want people to leave. Right. So it's it's a very strange relationship because it's a relationship where you're going to have this incredibly deep um, experience with somebody and then you're going to leave. Right. And and you know that from the beginning. So that might happen in life. You get into a relationship with somebody, it doesn't work out and then it ends. But this is where, you know, from day one, it is going to end. And so we really listen for what people's goals are. And I think that, you know, sometimes, again, it's about, you know, how do I how do I process this grief? How do I process this loss? Um, sometimes if someone's really anxious, how do you navigate more smoothly through the world um, and manage your anxiety better or your anger or your sadness? Right. Um, so, you know, or relationally, someone comes in and they're like, you know, I, I have these really have this, these really volatile relationships with lots of people. And I don't know why that is. And we help them to understand more about their role in that and what's going on. As I mentioned, I'm therapy curious, but I do, I feel like, you know, I've been waiting for a thing to happen, (laughs) some kind of event. And I'm like, yeah, I'm so open to it. I encourage it. I support it, you know, and people around me, but I'm still like, I'm good. To what extent would everyone benefit from therapy? So I don't think everyone needs to go to therapy. You know, the title of the book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, is sort of that nod to when you want to get someone into therapy and you say, well, maybe you should talk to someone. But but really what I mean by the title is maybe we all should talk more to one another. And I mean that in the sense of really um, having the conversations that are meaningful. So a lot of us, you know, you see on Instagram, like someone will say, oh, here's this thing I've never told anyone before. And I'm going to tell all of you. And then everyone comments like, you're so brave. That's amazing. You were so vulnerable. And I think it's great that people are being more open about emotional health. But I think real vulnerability and real connection happens face to face in the real world with someone who matters to you. Right. Like sitting on the couch with somebody and saying, I'm going to take off the mask. And what does that look like? I think that that's what what people are sort of missing about when when you talk about, like, does everybody need to be in therapy? I think that a lot of people need to talk more to one another. Some people would benefit greatly from therapy, but other people, I think, just need more connection. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are ways that you could get someone to open up? I mean, I feel like now that I've gone through therapy a little bit, I know some of the questions to maybe pry into when I'm sensing like there might be some weight behind something someone said. But are there standard questions you like to ask people when they're first coming in to see you? I think that we don't really know how to listen well to other people. And so it's not so much what you're asking, it's how you're listening. A lot of times someone will come to us with something and we feel like we have to fix the problem or we have to make them feel better in that moment or we feel, uh-oh, they're blaming me for something. I better, you know, how can I make this better? What do I need to do to change? Or how do I make them stop? How do I make them stop? Are they, you know, like saying what they're saying like because it's making me uncomfortable, right? Um, and so I think if you can really be a good listener, which means, first of all, asking them what they want out of the conversation. Do you want me to, do you want to just vent right now? Do you want to hug? Um, do you want me to help you talk this through? Do you want me to help you come up with a solution? Do you want do you want my honest opinion about this? And so let they can let you know what they want, and that helps so much, especially in couples. And then the other part of it is there are three words that help so much in any conversation, which is just tell me more. Those three words, tell me more, instead of trying to you know, solve, fix, um, defend, whatever it is, just tell me more and they will tell you more. And it, what it does is it helps them to hear their inner voice without us talking over it. And so they will learn something more about what they're trying to kind of process with you and you will learn more about them as a person. And I know I was talking about childhoods and that factoring into our adulthoods um, in very specific ways. Is that a topic you go into? Like I said, I think childhood obviously comes up because we're shaped by our experiences. But we're not here to blame people's parents. We're not here to say they were bad parents. You know, as a parent myself, I can name, you know, 10 things I did in the last week that could be fodder for therapy, right? I don't think it's about that. I think it's more about just understanding how certain experiences still live inside of you. And maybe it's like wearing clothes that don't fit anymore, that, that you're still carrying that around. You're still wearing these childhood clothes in your interactions in the present. And so you're reacting to people as if they are people who are actually not in the room anymore. And that's where childhood comes in. I'm just going to tell you a quick anecdote, which is as I'm unpacking childhood by having two children. So my daughter, who's three and a half, has recently been, you know, in the middle of the night, she'll wake up like and it's not like a baby. It's like, I need a human or there are shadows or whatever's going on. But the first time she said, I need a human, I was like, what do you need? Like you have water. Here's an extra sweatshirt. You know, I'm going to tuck you back in. She said, I just need a human. And I was like, oh, my God. And I suddenly thought about how I so I pretend sleepwalked 
for like an entire year when I was like six. I would just pretend that and I'd be like, I don't know how I got here. <laughs> and I, I completely forgot about that. And I said it to my husband like so casually. And he was like, I was like, all I needed was a human. We can't fully unpack it here. But it just made me feel like I really related to my three and a half year old. And it made me more curious about, you know, like how that could affect certain things and ways that we all like manifest these parts that formed us when we were little. It's interesting because our kids hold up a mirror to us too. You start to remember parts of your childhood at, like you were saying, you know, what does five years old look like? And, you know, you remember yourself at a certain age when that age was significant to you. We all need another human, by the way. And so it's great (laughs) that, that at three and a half, she can actually articulate that to you. I think everyone should have to say, I need a human, I know. especially right now. I want a t-shirt. I want a t-shirt like that. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of needing humans and this moment that we're in, obviously, this has been an insane year with quarantine, with COVID, with so much going on in society, learning and unlearning and educating yourselves. How have you seen therapy change this year? What are people talking about the most? What is lost or gained during the virtual sessions? Because I'm sure you're doing a ton of remote therapy. Talk to us more about what's going on right now. Well, before COVID, I was very anti-remote therapy because it was like a colleague said that doing remote therapy was like doing therapy with a condom on because (laughs) nothing can really replicate that experience of sitting in a room face to face with another person a few feet away. You hear them breathe, the little micro sounds in the room seeing the same things, the silences feel different, the pauses feel different, nobody's pixelated. You can see their whole body, so someone might say like, no, I'm not really anxious about that, and they're like kicking their foot up and down, but I can't see that on on Zoom, (laughs) but I can see that in the room, right? And so by necessity had to move to remote sessions during COVID, and I was really pleasantly surprised by some of the ways that, that it actually can be quite intimate. For example, I had a client who there was a cello in the background, um, you know, of our sessions. And I just said one day, like, whose cello is that? And she said, oh, it's mine. Um, you know, I play it for, her, you know, at least an hour or two every day. And I, I had known this person for a few years and I didn't know this big piece of this person's life. Right. Um, and I think there's also sort of a leveling going on where, you know, they're coming into my home, I'm coming into their home, which just doesn't happen in the same way, no matter how warm you feel like you make your office space. The fact is it's different. A lot of people are doing therapy. They want to find a private place in their house where they can do it. And so a lot of people are doing it from their toilet seats. You know, so we've got a lot of that going on. I personally do not do that. But it's interesting because I had this woman who she was sitting on the toilet seat in her bathroom and she was crying and saying, you know, my mother is in this assisted living facility and there was a case of COVID there and I'm so worried she's going to get it and she's going to die. She's sobbing. And by accident, she leaned back and with her elbow, she flushed the toilet. And it oh was it was gosh. one of these moments that was sort of funny, but not in the context of what she was saying. And then she said, am I the only person who you know does therapy from the toilet? And I said, no, actually, the toilet is the new couch right now. And I re- regretted it because I worried that she would think I was being glib in the middle of something that was very painful for her. But she laughed and I laughed. And, and, and what she said to me at the end of the session was she said, you know, what you said really helped, but what helped me the most was we were able to laugh together. And it reminded me of who I was before the pandemic and who I still am and who I will be when we emerge from this. And so I think, you know, the pandemic has stripped us so much of, of all the things that make us feel human. And yet 
I think in remote therapy, because of the fact that we're, we're seeing this other piece of, of people's lives, that it becomes incredibly human. You know, I see like I've heard about someone's husband or wife or, or children, you know, for however many months. And then all of a sudden there they are like walking through the back of the screen. It's like, oh, that's what that person looks like. Yeah, it's funny. I have actually never met my couples therapist in real life. I found him during COVID and oh, wow. I have no idea what the second half of his body looks like, nor does he <laughs> or mine. And they're probably, um, I'm going to tell you, they're probably like shorts on or sweatpants on the on that part totally. of his body. Yeah. I was going to back up and ask you, what are the different types of therapy as you understand them? And how are they all a little bit different from each other? There are many types of therapy. Um, the work that I do, psychotherapy, is very relational. It's what we might call psychodynamic, which is based on how people's experiences shape the way that they move through the world now. It's very much about sort of what happens in the room between me and the patient. And you'll see, and maybe you should talk to someone so much of that, that I think people think of their therapist almost like I'm going to like the dentist, right? They're performing a service, but there's a real relationship there. And often the way that people react to me in the therapy room is sort of a, a microcosm of how they react to other people, other important people in their lives outside of the therapy room. And it gives them a window to see, oh, wow, let's, let's talk more about like why that made you angry or what just happened there when I said that, because that happens a lot too in your marriage or that happens a lot too with your mom or your child. Are there other forms beyond that? Yeah, of course. So, you know, there's, um, as I mentioned earlier, there's, you know, CBT is cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very much about the relationship between our cognitions, our thoughts and our behaviors. And what's an example of that? So somebody has a thought, um, you know, especially with something like OCD, right? So somebody says, you know, if I don't touch the door three times, before I leave, then something terrible is going to happen. And so it's really about looking at that thought and looking at the flow of, you know, how you get from that thought to the behavior of I have to I have to touch the door three times. Obviously, there's lots of different approaches to therapy. So even though I might have the same training as someone else, how I am in the room is very much based on my personality versus the other personality of whoever else is doing therapy. It's kind of like if you go to an internist, it'll probably be a pretty similar experience. But if you go to a therapist, it's going to be a wildly different experience based on that relationship. So not in terms of like the interventions and, and what we do and how we're trained, but in terms of just how we interact and Study after study shows that the most important factor in the success of someone's therapy isn't the modality somebody uses or their number of years of training um, or experience. All of those matter, so I don't want to downplay those. Every single piece of that matters. But what matters the most is the relationship between the therapist and the patient. And so when people are looking for a therapist, it's really important that when they go for that first session, they really ask themselves at the end of the session, how do they feel? talking to this person, right? Because just because you went for a consultation doesn't mean you're in therapy with that person. How many consultations does it take usually for someone to find their person? It's very idiosyncratic. You know, often people, they go in and the first person that they go into is is the right person. And maybe that's because they got a recommendation. So it, you know, it wasn't just random. I think that when you get a recommendation from somebody, usually, you know, you're going to be pointed in a good direction, but not always. You know, it's not it's not because the therapist was bad necessarily. It's that maybe it wasn't the right fit for you. Yeah, that's what usually I see people give up because they can't find somebody that clicks with them. So they just stop searching. 
Yeah, and you know what I think is really important is if you go to a therapist and say you go to a first session and you think, yeah, you know, like, did you feel understood? Do you feel like the person sort of got you in a way that someone can in a first meeting? And also, did you feel like the person challenged you a little bit? And we're not going to challenge someone so much in a first session, but do you feel like this person is going to help you to see something that you don't already see? Or are they just going to be more sort of passive, which might not help you as much? Or if you're me, did you cry in the first five minutes? Like, (laughs) right. And you know, I think people think they're supposed to cry in therapy. I think, you know, you're going to feel lots of different things in therapy, but I don't necessarily think that that's a barometer of how well the session went. But I do think that you need to feel as opposed to think. So there's a difference between like, I thought this about that session or it was this emotional experience for me and I felt something. If that happened, I would go back for a second session. But again, that doesn't mean you're in therapy with that person. It might take a few sessions before you say, yeah, I really wanna do the work with this person. And if you don't, don't ghost the therapist. So a lot of people will just say, yeah, you know, I can't really schedule yet. I got to look at my calendar and work and this and that. And then they just never get back to you. A really good experience for you is to be able to say, you know what? I'm not sure why, but I just, I don't feel like this is, I'm connecting here. This is really working. And you can talk about it with the therapist. Even if you decide, hey, it's really not. Sometimes you might discover something about why it's not working. And that happens a lot. But also what happens just as much is you might decide, yeah, it's it's really not. And maybe they can help you get to someone else. But the main thing is that you had the experience of having a difficult conversation with someone. And that translates so well to what we need to do in life all the time. How do we have difficult conversations with people instead of just avoiding or running away? I know that there's also couples therapy and then is there family therapy? Is that a special type of therapy? Yes. So I do mostly couples at this point. And, you know, family therapy is really important in lots of cases because there's usually what we call an IP, which is the identified patient. And that's the person who kind of holds all the symptoms for the family. So it's like someone will say, you know, oh, our child needs therapy because the child is acting out, right? But really the child is, and everybody else is fine. Like everybody in the family is fine. It's just the child and we don't know what to do with this child, right? But often that child is holding the symptoms for everybody in the family. And the child is probably like the most healthy person actually, because the child is saying, wait, you know, ding, 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 ding. Let me ring the alarm bell here because something is wrong here. And the child's the only person who's really calling that out. So in those cases, family therapy can be incredibly useful instead of saying, oh, you're the problem. We're gonna send you to therapy. And then nobody else changes. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. All right, time for the speed round. You know, one of the most intriguing parts about your book, of course, is that it shows the side of therapy that most people don't get to see, which is what it's like for the therapist. So before we wrap up, we'd love to do a speed round where we get to be flies on the wall so you can help us think like a therapist. 
<laughs> I know. Are you ready? I'm excited. I I'm should have read the email. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So. Okay. How do you remember details about your patients' lives? Do you have tricks to keeping everything straight? I worried about this when I was training. I thought, I'm never going to remember this. I can't even remember it with like people I know half the time, right? And what happens is, you know, we're doing a TV series of the book. And I think of it like therapy sessions as, t as a TV series almost. It's like you remember what happens from week to week when you're watching a TV series. You remember the characters' names. You remember all of the details and all of the different things that have happened. It's kind of like that when you're a therapist, that you remember it because you're so invested in it every week that you just you just don't forget it. I do have notes, but I don't necessarily write down names and things like that. But I very much remember them just because I'm I'm so invested from week to week in, in the story that is unfolding. So I'm so bad about this. I was I grew up in the South and I always was taught to ask people about how they are. And so when a therapist is talking to me, I'm like, but what about you? What's new with your life? Did people do this to you? And is it really uncomfortable? Do you reveal the details about yourself? Yeah. You know, we're very intentional about what we call self-disclosure. So if I'm going to disclose something about my own life, which is very rare, I'm going to do it for a reason. And and I gave a couple of examples and maybe you should talk to someone of people who disclose things like a colleague of mine uh, was seeing somebody whose child had Tourette syndrome and so did my colleague's child. And she revealed that. And it made the patient feel so much more seen and heard and understood because it's one thing to talk about an experience. It's another to say, even though their experiences might have been different, that you get the broad strokes in a way that somebody who hasn't experienced this might. So that's an example of intentional self-disclosure. I remember in your book first, one of your patients caught you out and you were like, oh no, she just <laughs> saw me. Like, what do I do now? So do people also see you out and about and, yeah. and you sort of your lives blur together. Yeah. You know, people will, will see me out. You know, I've been seen by a patient. Uh, I was at a Lakers game with my son and, you know, we we're waiting in line right next to each other, almost those kinds of things. You know, you can be out at like the yogurt place or whatever, and you'll run into people. And I try to give people privacy. You know, I never greet them. Um, if they greet me, I'll say hello, but I won't linger. You know, if I'm like in the yogurt place in that scene in the book where you see I'm with my boyfriend, I, you know, I went to the table by the window and didn't face them. So they had their privacy. I'm very mindful of making sure that people aren't uncomfortable. So in your book, you write about seeing your own therapist. Why do you think it's so important for therapists to go to therapy? I think that when we see our patients, they are forcing us to ask ourselves the same questions that they are asking themselves about life. Maybe the situations are different, but I think there are these universal existential questions that we all ask about meaning and love and purpose and, you know, all of those things. And so I think that it's really important to have a place to go to really understand yourself better, partly just because for personal development to understand yourself better, partly because I say at the beginning of the book that my most significant credential is that I'm a card-carrying member of the human race, that I use my humanity in the room all the time. And I think that, you know, it's, it's important that your therapist knows what it's like to be a person in the world and to struggle in whatever ways that might have been, even if it's vastly different from yours. I think that the more you can understand about yourself and what's happened in your own life. It's good for you in your personal life, unrelated to being a therapist, but I think it makes you a much better therapist too. So I know that you mentioned there actually is a finish line to therapy, potentially, that your goal is to get people out. What is that benchmark for you? What is considered success? 
I think that when people reach their goals and people don't realize this and you can see it in the book because I really wanted people to understand that it's not like you go to therapy and, and, and you're just kind of there. We are very intentional about thinking about, well, why did this person come in? What wasn't working? And what kind of progress are we making along the way? That's part of what we write in our chart notes, by the way, is we're kind of keeping track of progress. And so I think when it gets to the point where maybe someone's coming in and they're doing a lot of chit chat, either there's something they're not telling me <laughs> that we need to be talking about, or maybe we're done. Maybe, um, you know, we've sort of gotten to a point for right now. And I say for right now, because often people leave and they come back at a different time when something else is happening in their lives. Um, and, and sometimes people never come back because they came for a specific reason and that was very helpful and now they're done. But I think we're, we're always tracking that. And, and I will bring it up if I feel like, you know, at this point, given we've worked on X, Y, and Z, and here's what you've accomplished with that, you know, what do you want to work on right now? And we may have a conversation about, you know what, I think I'm good right now. Does the patient ever say that first? Yes. Like you know what? I've decided I'm done. Or Okay. So it's a mutual thing. So sometimes what will happen is someone will have what we call a flight to health. And that's when like, say that I go on vacation for two weeks and the person was really struggling with something. And then the two weeks are over, we come back and the person is like, I did really well during those two weeks. I, I don't think I need to be in therapy anymore. I'm fine. And that's just because it was so much more comfortable not to have to keep working on that thing that is really hard for them. Like maybe they were just at this point of opening up something that maybe they don't want to open up. So that's a different example of, you know, then we might say, well, maybe, maybe not. Let's talk about that. Right. But sometimes, yes, people will come in and they'll say, you know what, I'm feeling really good. I feel like I've done this, this, and this, and this is working really well. And I, you know, as most therapists, we, we will encourage that. We, we want to encourage people's independence. We don't want them to feel like, you know, we have failed as therapists, just like we have failed as parents if our kids can't launch into the world at mm -hmm. some point. Um, we have failed as therapists if we can't launch our patients back into the world in a healthier way. And my last question on this topic is that I just feel like I'm on a maintenance plan. I do like once a month for an hour just to like check in. I kind of don't want to graduate. Is that a bad thing? I think that you're very clear about why you're there. So it's not a bad thing. There's a chapter in the book called How Humans Change, and it goes through all the stages of change because therapy is really essentially about change. And there are all these stages before you decide to make a change. There's like pre-contemplation, you don't even know you're thinking about it. There's preparation, there's, you know, when you actually make the change. But the most important stage is maintenance. And maintenance is, and that's the hardest too, because it's like one thing to make a change, as we all know with New Year's resolutions, right? It's one thing to make a change. It's another thing to maintain the change. And people are going to regress, they're going to slip back. And so having some support around that can be very, very helpful. Um, so I think that because you're very clear about why you're there and what you're getting out of it, that it's a, it's a healthy reason for being there. Cool. Thanks. Thanks for the validation. <laughs> Well, we know Britt's favorite part is always going to be homework. So therapy is all about homework, doing the work outside of the session, and it's really an active relationship. Can you be our therapist and our listeners' therapist for a second? What homework do you have for us and everyone listening? Mm. I would say this. I would say that what so many people struggle with is this critical voice in their heads that they don't even know is there. It's like a radio station playing in the background and they don't even know that it's there, but they're still hearing it on some level. I had this patient who I was pointing out how self-critical she was and she just, she was like, no, I'm not, really, I'm not. So I said, I want you to go home and I want you to write down 
everything you say to yourself in the course of a few days and then come back and read this to me. And it's like when I give talks, I'll say to people, you know, who's the person that you talk to most in the course of your life? Raise, you know, show of hands. Is it your is it your partner? Is it your best friend? Is it your sibling? Is it your parent, right? Get lots of hands for that. But you know what? The person that we talk to most in the course of our lives is ourselves. And what we say to ourselves isn't always kind or true or helpful. And so when she did this exercise and she wrote down everything that she said to herself, she came back the next week and she started to read. And then she said, wait a minute, I can't do this. I am such a bully to myself. I had no idea. And so if I had to give a homework assignment, I would say, do that. Take just notice what you're saying to yourself, everything you say. And there were things just, for example, she would say things to herself like, oh, you made that mistake. You're so stupid. Whereas like if a friend made that mistake, you would never think, oh, my friend's so stupid. It's just like a normal human mistake. Or she'd say, God, I look terrible. Right. And if her friend looked like that, she would not think, oh, my God, my friend looks terrible. She can't even go out. So just notice how you talk to yourself and then maybe think about how a friend would talk to you and try to kind of make that adjustment so that you can change the station, so that you can listen to a kinder and more accurate station, because what you're saying to yourself is distorted and inaccurate most of the time. So how can you not be such an unreliable narrator of your own life to yourself? How can you be a voice that is going to be compassionate and also hold yourself accountable at the same time? Mm, so good and it all ties back to the stories that we tell ourselves right Mm -hmm. it's all about a story before you go tell us more about your book maybe you should talk to someone and also your podcast dear therapist so the book is maybe you should talk to someone and in the book i bring people into the therapy room and we follow four seemingly very different patients as they go through their various struggles and like you said You know, I think therapy is one of the things I really wanted to do in the book was kind of demystify what therapy is and what therapy isn't. I do that, I think, too, in the podcast. It's called Dear Therapists, um, and it's me and a fellow therapist, Guy Winch. And we bring people on and they bring us their dilemma. And we kind of do what similar to what we would do in a session. And so people can see, oh, these are how these conversations go. And then unlike in a session, we actually give them advice that they have to try within a week and then they come back and they tell us how it went. And I think there's something very satisfying about that because I think one of the things people don't understand about therapy is that you have to be very accountable. You have to actually make changes out in the world in between the sessions. We always like to say that insight is the booby prize of therapy, that you can have all the insight in the world, but if you don't make changes out in the world, the insight is useless. So that's really what I hope people are seeing is that it's a very it's a very active process. It's not you go into therapy, you talk about your childhood ad nauseum and you never leave. That is not what the process of therapy is. Love it. Thank you so much. And are you ready to go to therapy? I mean, I think so. I'm definitely ready for the homework. Remember, you need you need a human. You need a human. Don't I need forget. a human. I know. I'll be your therapist, Ange. <laughs> I, I know. Don't know. Tell, me, I don't tell know. me more. Tell me more. <laughs> tell me more. Thank you, Lori. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Special shout out to my co-host, Ange, who you can find on Instagram at Angelica Temple. 
Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Christine Swore and Ali Perry with additional production and sound design by Aaron Kaufman. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. See you next time.